Thank you, Kristen. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Bill Gorman, and I serve as the campus pastor here at the Brookside Campus. And it's so good to see each one of you uh, here this morning. Thanks for taking time to uh, worship together with us. And if you are new, if this is one of your first Sundays with us, just want to extend a special welcome to you, and, and thanks for, for coming and being with us. I know it is hard to find a church family. It's hard to be new at a church, so thanks for doing that, for coming and being a part of us. Uh, this morning. Um, well, before we look at this passage of Scripture uh, from Luke's Gospel, I'd love to take a moment and just ask for the Holy Spirit's help in praying. Jesus says at the end there that he will give the Spirit to those who ask for it. So let's ask for the Spirit's help now to understand uh, God's Word. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you have given us uh, your Word um, as, a, as a gift, um, a way of knowing you, and we ask for the help of your Spirit now to understand it. Um, and to apply it in our lives. So we depend on you for that um, this morning and, and always, and so we ask for your help now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, how many of you this morning uh, would say this is a pretty good description of, of your life uh, right now, that, that you are worried and anxious about many things? You are worried and anxious about many things. Just raise your hand if that statement is a pretty good description of where you're at in life right now. As I reflected on my week uh, this week, I just realized how often, um, actually how painfully often, that phrase, you are worried and anxious about many things, describes my day-to-day existence. I mean, at any given moments, our minds can be racing with concerns about, about money, about exams, about projects at work, deadlines, relationships, kids. And that's really just right between the time that you wake up and, and then your feet hit the floor, right? I mean, that's not even after the first cup of coffee that those things are rushing through your mind. Listen to how one writer describes the kind of busy, worried, distracted state we live in so much of the time. And see if these words don't resonate with your experience. He writes this, What keeps many of us from growing as Christians is not sin, but speed. We are going as fast as we can, living life at dizzying speed, and God is nowhere to be found. It's not that we're too decadent, we're too busy. It's it's not that we're sinning too much that's killing our souls. It's our schedule that's annihilating us. He says, most of us don't come home at night staggering drunk. Instead, we come home staggering tired, worn out, exhausted, and drained because we live too fast. Ouch. I'm always convicted every time I read those words from Mike Iaconelli. We often talk about busyness and distractedness and worry as problems that kind of belong in a unique way to our multitasking, kind of fast-paced world of the 21st century. But really, these are universally human problems, right? These aren't just sort of cultural or technological problems that, that we deal with. And in fact, we see at the end of Luke chapter 10, right before the verses that were just read for us, that worry and anxiety and distraction are nothing new. And in fact, they were as much a reality in the first century as they are for us today in the 21st century. And, and so if these problems are universal, spanning time and culture, is there really anything that can be done about them? Is, is this really the best that we can do to sort of get our, our Getting Things Done book or our Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? Is that, is that the best thing we can do to relieve anxiety? And maybe those things are helpful for managing homework or projects or deadlines. But, but what about relationships? What about the kid in your class who, who won't stop picking on you? 
Or, or what about the girlfriend that you just you sense that, that she's about to break up with you? Or the bills that just keep piling up? Or the child who is sick? I mean, David Allen and, and Franklin Covey, as helpful as they are in so many ways, they, they just don't do much to alleviate worry and anxiety in those areas. So can we really do anything more than just tell ourselves it's going to be okay, but without ever really deep, deep down convincing ourselves that that's, that's really true, that it is going to be okay? Well, what we find this morning, at the end of Luke chapter 10 and the beginning of Luke chapter 11, is that Jesus gives us surprising insight into the worry and anxiety that, that we face so often, and he invites us to something completely different. He shows us a way of taking a deep breath of fresh air in the midst of the suffocating clouds of worry and distraction. In the midst of of never-ending to-do lists, of overflowing inboxes, of double-book calendars, Jesus tells us that one thing is necessary. That one thing is necessary. What is that one thing? What is the one thing that Jesus says is necessary? And I think it's best captured with the word dependence. The one thing that is necessary is dependence. And so this morning as we look at who Jesus is and and what he taught in this passage from Luke, we're going to see the the priority of dependence. We're going to see the pattern of dependence and then the approach of of dependence. So the, the priority, the pattern, and the approach of dependence. And the first thing we see is actually the priority of dependence. And if we look back just a few verses from Luke chapter 11, verse 1, into Luke chapter 10, we see the context of the Lord's Prayer. And I think this is vital for us to understand. Look at, at uh, Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38. Jesus uh, is going to a village, and it says, Now as they were, went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. How many of that is like our life verse? You are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, and it will not be taken away from her. See, in verse 39, we learn that, that Martha has this sister named Mary, uh, who is in her home with that day that Jesus comes with his guests and this is where the tension in this little story begins to build. It often story builds uh, tension when our siblings are involved, right? Isn't that a moment sometimes when, when tension enters a story? So Mary's sister is there, and, and instead of helping with the hospitality, she's sitting at Jesus' feet. And Jesus says that one thing is necessary, this dependence. Martha is distracted, but Mary is dependent Now, there's two unexpected things in this verse, and the first is who Jesus invites into a discipleship relationship with him, and and I'll explain what discipleship is in just a moment, but notice in verse 39 where Mary's at. Luke tells us that she's sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his teaching. 
She's at Jesus' feet listening to his teaching. Now this posture of sitting at someone's feet and listening to their teaching, this was the posture of someone who was taking on that posture of a learner or a disciple. So in the first century, a Jewish rabbi would have a group of disciples, of followers, apprentices who would learn from him how to study the scriptures, how to live this life that God had called. And the posture of that disciple was to sit at the feet of their master and listen to his teaching. But what is surprising, even shocking about this text is that we find Mary, a woman in this position, because rabbis didn't have women as disciples. But Rabbi Jesus does. He calls both men and women into this relationship of discipleship, of being a learner with him. And Luke's gospel in particular, and many of you have been reading along and open here, Luke highlights Jesus' unique relationship of inviting women into this place of discipleship, even more than the other gospel writers. And so Luke highlights the fact that Mary, a woman, this is so unexpected, is at the feet of Jesus in this discipleship place. So the first surprising thing we see here is that Jesus invites Mary into this discipleship relationship, this teacher-student-master-apprentice relationship. But the second shocking thing, and actually this is almost more shocking, is the priority that Jesus places on this relationship. You see, when Jesus says to Martha, 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 you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen the good portion that will not be taken away from her. What he's saying to Martha is dependence on me, learning from me, being with me, entrusting everything to me, being completely dependent on me, takes priority over everything else. That it takes priority over everything else. You see, culturally, Martha had every right to expect and assume that Mary as a, as a woman would, would and ought to be helping her with the work of hospitality. Um, this was of the utmost importance when you had guests into your home, even much more so now than it is today, that the role of creating a hospitable environment was, was, a, was paramount. In fact, um, scholars will say that, that even more than their Greco-Roman neighbors, Jews of that time prized hospitality more uh, than almost any other virtue And as a woman in that culture, Mary's priority should have been hospitality above all else. However, what Jesus communicates here is that Mary's identity as a disciple is even more fundamental than the cultural expectations to her identity as a woman. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's saying that your identity as a woman, that your identity as a man is first and foremost defined in terms of your identity as a disciple. You can only be the woman, you can only be the man that you are meant to be as long as you are first and foremost a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, an apprentice of Jesus. And in saying this, Jesus doesn't in any way relativize or dismiss gender or sexual identity, far from it. But what he does make clear is that we cannot be the men and women that we were created to be, that we long to be, apart from a relationship with him that takes priority over everything else. See, one thing is necessary. One thing is necessary, dependence on Christ. You see, if we're going to escape the cycle of distraction and worry and anxiety that that we invariably experience, then we must prioritize a relationship of dependence with the one person who can tell us who we really are. 
You see, for so many of us, especially I think Americans probably uniquely are are this way, our actions, our accomplishments, our ability to get things done define who we are. And we're addicted to productivity. I remember uh, a couple of weeks ago, it was a Friday. Friday is the day that that Rachel, my wife, and I, that we take off work together. And it's kind of our one day that we set aside for for rest together. And I remember sitting on the couch at the end of the day and, and say, this was such a great day. Because we got so much done. We had this long list of stuff, and we had checked it all off. We had done all these errands. We had done all these projects around the house. And I, I realized even for me to have a day off that felt good, I had to have a list of things that had been accomplished. Right? So we are so addicted to productivity. But our goal in life isn't to accomplish great things. Our goal in life is not to accomplish great things. Our goal in life is to be enter into a relationship with a great person. Our goal in life is not to accomplish great things, but to prioritize above all else a relationship with a great person. And now many of you might be thinking, okay, well, maybe that was easy enough for for Mary or, or for Martha to do. They had Jesus sitting right there. I mean, they could talk to him. They could see him. They could eat a meal with him. But how do I have a relationship with someone that I I can't see? I mean, it is kind of different, isn't it? In some ways, our relationship with God is exactly like our other relationships, but in other ways, it's, it's completely different. So how do we cultivate that kind of relationship? Well, well here are just a couple of, of thoughts, suggestions. Even if we can't see Jesus, we can come to know him and hear from him in, in his word, and in the community of the local church. And this is part of the reason why this whole year we've been engaged in this thing we're calling Open Here, which is developing a a pattern, a a habit of reading God's Word um, every day. And it's because this is the place where where God speaks to us. When we read God's Word, we're not just analyzing a, a, a document. We're encountering the risen Christ to whom every part of Scripture ultimately points. Mary sat at Jesus' feet and listened. To his teaching. Do we do that? Do, do we sit at the feet of, of this book and listen to Jesus' teaching? See, the, the relationship, the posture of learning from Jesus may take prior, must take priority because it, it's the fundamental thing that defines who we are. More than our sex, gender, race, ethnicity, vocation, whether or not we are a disciple of Jesus ultimately defines who we are and the trajectory of our lives, both now and forever. It has to take priority. So what we saw here at the end of chapter 10 is the priority of dependence. But now when we turn to chapter 11, verse 1, we see the pattern of dependence. And so if you look at verse 1, we see this. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And so Jesus' disciples, they, they see Jesus praying and they ask him, Jesus, teach us to pray. And I don't think it's an accident, and this is why I backed up, that Luke places this moment of the disciples asking Jesus to teach them to pray right after the story of Mary and Martha. Because you see, prayer is the, the deepest pathway into this joyful dependence. In fact, William Law, who was a pastor and theologian in the 18th century, he, he put it this way. He says, prayer is the nearest approach to God and the highest enjoyment of him that we are capable of in this life. 
Prayer is the nearest approach to God and the highest enjoyment of him that we are capable of in this life. Uh, when I first read that, actually, I was a little bit skeptical. And maybe you're thinking, Bill, but prayer, really? The highest enjoyment capable in this life? Uh, prayer doesn't seem like the highest enjoyment of, en- of anything to me in this life. Uh, prayer is hard, right? I mean, how are we supposed to pray? And this is exactly what Jesus' disciples want to know. They say, now, not only should we take note here that, that they ask him to teach them to pray, but actually, this is the only time that I could find anywhere in the Gospels that Jesus, or that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them anything. Um, I mean, the disciples, if you know a little bit about them, the, the, the 12, they're, they're, they can be a little bit thick sometimes. And this is actually the only place in all of, all of the Gospels where they actually ask Jesus, teach us, teach us something, teach us to pray. Um, and in response to that, Jesus gives them not a, not a formula, not a rote formula, but a pattern, a pattern of prayer that is to shape the one thing that is necessary in their lives, dependence. And this is the pattern that he gives them. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Now, the first thing you probably notice about this prayer, and when we said it uh, earlier on the screen, is that this is a little different than if you've ever been around the church. You've probably prayed a longer version that comes from Matthew chapter 6. And this is Luke's version uh, here that Jesus gives in Luke. It's much shorter. Um, And the reason for this is likely that Jesus taught this prayer more than once, right? I mean, Jesus probably didn't just have the one moment in his entire three years of ministry where he taught this prayer. And if it truly is a pattern for prayer and not just a formula, it doesn't have to be exactly the same every time, right? And so Luke's version is a little bit shorter. The version we find in Matthew is a little bit longer. But Jesus gives us this pattern of prayer. So what is the pattern that Jesus gives? Well, first, the pattern that Jesus gives, it's simple, honest, bold, and it's radically God-centered. So Jesus teaches his disciples not to address, and this is what's, what's a total departure from what we've seen earlier in, in the Bible, not to address him as Almighty God or as Lord of hosts. I mean, these are a lot of the terms that we saw in the prophets, but he says, call God, address God as Father. God's people are to relate to him as children to a father, to a loving and merciful and good Father. And this is a whole new way of understanding our relationship with God. Father is uniquely the Christian name for God. It is the name by which Jesus knows God. Father. So it's God-centered. It's centered on the Father. But second, the pattern is request-focused. And, and if you, again, if you've grown up in the church, you've been around the church, uh, some of you may not have this baggage if you didn't grow up in the church, but, but many of you, if you grew up in the church, uh, you may have learned the sort of acts pattern, right? So the, the adoration, confession, thanksgiving, uh, supplication pattern of this is how you should pray. And, and that's good, and it's, it's a great pattern so far as it goes. But when you look at Jesus' prayer and the Lord's prayer, it starts, the second word is a request. I mean, it's request-focused. Um, so the, the very... Second thing after the word Father is, is a request. Hallowed be your name. It's, a, uh, it's in the imperative mood. It's a request. Do this. Hallowed be your name. 
And, and that word is probably something you, we don't talk about hallowing much these days, but it's the idea of making your name holy. And God's name, again, it represents all that he is, his character, his reputation, his character, who he is. And so when we pray, hallowed be the name, or God, make your, holy, your name holy, we're saying, God, we want you to be seen for who you are. We want your reputation to be, we want your fame to spread throughout the earth. We want you to be seen for who you are and to be enjoyed for who you are. Make your name holy. May people see who you are and may they enjoy you for who you are. The second request is that God's kingdom would come. God's kingdom here is is one of the quick definitions if you think, what is God's kingdom? God's kingdom is, is the place where God gets done what he wants done. Where God gets done what he wants done. When we pray that God's kingdom would come, we, we are first praying that God's rule, his design would advance in, in our lives, and in our homes, in our families, and in, in our places of influence. And, and second, that God would come again to complete the work of restoration and redemption that was begun in his life, his death, and his resurrection. So there's kind of these two facets. We're saying, God, would you be at work making my life a place where you get done what you want done And then secondarily, would you come again soon and set the world right? Would you finish the work that you began in your life, death, and resurrection? Then there's a third request, right? I mean, this is just request after request. The third request is that our Father, would you give us each day our daily bread? You see, we are in a constant state of dependency on God for every meal, for every drink of water, for every paycheck in the bank account, for every shirt in our closet. All of these things are ultimately good gifts from our Father who is in heaven. Every one of them. Remember, one thing is necessary. Dependence. The fourth request deals with with forgiveness. Here Jesus describes sin with this language of indebtedness to another person. And and when Jesus basically, when we sin against someone, there's a a debt that is created. So for example, we even use this language in our our speech today. We talk about owing one another the truth, right? That that I'm I'm owed the truth or you owe me the truth, right? So if if I lie to you, I I haven't given you what, what you're owed and now there's this debt, this debt of truth that's been created and the thing is, though, even if you come to a place of, of confessing that sin and, and you come and you do tell someone the truth, I'm sorry, I lied, and, and here's the truth, and in a sense, even then, the debt isn't fully repaid, right? Because even now you've given the truth, but the relationship is still broken. I mean, it's in, in the same way, right? If I stole money from you, even if I gave you the money back, everything still isn't repaired, right? The relationship has been broken, even if, if kind of the, the, the debt itself has been repaid and money. And so what we're asking, what we're saying is that, that we are going to absorb that indebtedness into ourselves. This is what we ask God to do with our sin. Would you take our sin onto yourself? Would you take our debt onto yourself and, and forgive us? And this is what we ask God to do with our sin. It is what people whose lives are being shaped by the kingdom do for one another. We can have confidence that God, who is perfectly merciful, will forgive us if we know that even those of us who are far from perfect are able to forgive one another. And, and the final request in this, this short, bold, simple, honest prayer 
is that the Father would not lean us, lead us into temptation. And this request is really, it's a recognition of humility. It's a recognition, it's an, an asking of God to say, remember that we are weak. Remember that we are but dust. And Psalm 103 promises that God remembers that we are but dust. Remember that we are weak. It's crying out to God and saying, don't give me more than I can handle for fear that through temptation or hardship or illness or distraction or fear or worry that I would abandon you who I love. Don't don't give me more than I can handle. Don't lead me into a place where where I'm going to be tempted to run from you. So now that we've seen this pattern, I just want to, I want to pray this pattern, but, but not in the Lord's Prayer. Just show you, how might this work out? Again, it's not about these exact words all the time. So what might it look like if we were just to kind of take some of this reflection and just put it into a prayer? And, and I just want to pause right now in the middle of the message, and, and let's just pray this prayer. Um, I'm just going to pray this over you. Father, Help me and those around me to understand and love your name for who you are. Love you for who you are, that we may enjoy you for who you have made us to be, to enjoy who you are. Father, bring your kingdom today in my life, in my family, in my home. Lord, bring your kingdom in our neighborhood, in our city, in our country, in our world. Father, provide for me. Provide for us all that we need today. Make us dependent on you for everything. Father, help me to know where I have sinned against you. And and please, Father, forgive me. Help me to forgive others. Father, you, you know my weaknesses. You know how prone I am to temptation, to worry, to distraction, to fear. Please protect me from the evil one today from my own sinful inclinations. Amen. So this pattern of dependence that Jesus teaches us in this prayer is only formed in us through lots of practice. As followers of Jesus, we need to dig better ruts in our lives. And let me explain what I mean by that. We need to dig better ruts in our lives. If you've ever been driving on a dirt road or or maybe riding your bike on the trolley track trail out here, there's some ruts, right? And if your tire gets in one of those ruts, um, it just kind of takes over the steering for you. I mean, you're going to go where that rut is taking you. And sometimes that can be a bad thing, especially on a bike, uh, if you lose your balance. But a rut is, it's a routine, it's a habit, and all of us have ruts in the pathways of our lives, and some of them are good or bad, but we all have habits that we've cultivated uh, intentionally and unintentionally in our lives. And if we're going to maintain this, this priority, this pattern of the one thing that is necessary in our lives, this dependence, then we need to dig a, a better rut in our lives, one that includes space for a routine of prayer. And Charles Duhigg, in his best-selling book, The Power of Habit, probably many of you have read this or seen this book, Um, he does a lot of speaking now, but he talks about how these habits, these ruts, um, these pathways that are kind of ground into the pathways of our lives can actually free us for rest. And he says, any behavior, this is Charles Duhigg, any behavior that can be reduced to routine is one less behavior that we must spend time and energy consciously thinking and deciding upon. And he says, this frees up time and energy for other matters. He says, once a habit starts unfolding, our gray matter is free to quiet itself. 
And so, for example, Duhigg in the book, he, he reminds us, or he asks us to remember uh, learning to back a car out of the driveway. Now, some of you who are students here, you're maybe in the midst of doing this right now, learning this process. This is going to be really fresh for you. But for most of us, it's been a long time ago since we learned to back a car out of the driveway. But have you ever stopped to think how incredibly complex of a task that is? Right? So you get down in the car, you sit down, you turn it on, um, you put your foot on the brake, and you put the car in gear, you check your mirrors, you look behind you, you put your, take your foot off the brake, you put your foot on the gas, you back up, you put your foot on the brake as you get to the end of the driveway, stop, look both ways to see if there are cars that are coming, take your foot off the brake, put your foot back on the gas, go out, angle the car, stop, put the gear back into drive, and then you're on your way. But how many of us now, we just do that without even thinking, right? I mean, we can be on the phone, maybe not ideal, but we can be on the phone adjusting the radio, talking, yelling at the kids, whatever it might be, all the while doing this, right? And so once something is committed to a habit, a pattern, it just becomes second nature. Don't know, hardly, when's the last time you, you thought through everything that goes into backing a car out of the driveway? I mean, doubt most of us have. But prayer, learning to pray, can kind of feel like backing a car out of the driveway at first, it just seems hard and complex, and it's effort and planning and trying to carve out space. And, and then once I have the space, what do I do? And, am I, and I'm always have these thoughts, am I, well, am I being too selfish? And is this the right way to do it? And who was that person I said I would pray for them yesterday? I'm already forgetting, and now I'm here and I, I can't remember. And, but like backing a car, if we develop a habit, a rut, that this pattern of prayer begins to become a time that we truly can enjoy. I mean, for me, my rut is, is wake up, take a shower, make coffee, read my Bible, and then pray. And I used to have this idea that, no, it would be really spiritual if the first thing, the very first thing I did when I woke up was to pray. Uh, but it turned out not to be that spiritual because for me, I just kept falling asleep uh, and not being able to concentrate. And so I said, you know what, maybe it's actually, you know, God who's made me a creature with a body, maybe he understands that a shower and a cup of coffee can go a long way in putting me in a place where I can actually connect meaningfully with him. Um, now, some of you may be thinking, Bill, it seems like you're talking a lot about kind of having a set time of prayer each day. And that's good, but I really kind of take a model of more sort of praying without ceasing, kind of throughout my day. And, and the Bible it calls us to do both. Uh, and we see both of them in Jesus' life. So you see Jesus all throughout his life taking times where he is specifically getting away to do nothing else but pray. But also Jesus through, lives his life in a constant dependence on the Father in a state of prayer through the Spirit as well. And what I found is that one feeds the other. And so if I've taken a, f- a few moments even just to do nothing else but just to pause and pray, then that kind of state of prayerful dependence comes much more easily throughout the rest of the day. I found Paul Miller's book, uh, A Praying Life, to be so helpful as just a practical kind of realistic guide to pray. And it's one that if you are looking like, I really want to do this, but my life just seems too busy, too distracted, Paul's book is so great in helping us figure out how do we build this in. I'd encourage you to read it. And there are lots of other great resources too. But really more important than anything is this. Have, have you asked Jesus to teach you to pray? I was struck by this week. I, I've done a lot of work in trying to learn to pray, but I don't know if I've actually prayed the prayer, Jesus, would you teach me to pray? I don't know that I've actually asked Jesus to teach me a lot of anything. 
do we ask him to teach us how to pray? So we've seen the priority and the pattern of dependence. In the verses following the Lord's Prayer, Jesus tells us a story that shows the approach of dependence. Listen to what Jesus says here. He says uh, to his disciples, which one of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived in a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, don't bother me. The door is now shut and my children are in bed and, and I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, Jesus says, though he will not get up and give you anything because he is a friend, yet because of your imprudence, and the NIV actually translates that word shameless audacity, and I think that really captures it, because of your shameless audacity, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find a knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. And then Jesus says, Father, who, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, instead of a fish will give him a serpent. Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. And then Jesus, I love what Jesus says here. He says, then if you, being evil, uh, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those whom we ask? And I love how Jesus just kind of tosses that in. Hey, you know, you who are evil, oh, thanks Jesus, um, you who are evil know how to give good gifts. How much more will your Heavenly Father? You see, the approach of dependence is one of shameless audacity. It's rooted in a deep trust that God is good, that he hears us, and that he will give us what we need. You see, Jesus invites him to approach us like fathers approach, uh, the, the children approach their fathers. And, and in these verses, Jesus is making an argument, really from the, the, the lesser to the greater. He's saying that, that even if your cranky neighbor will answer you when you continuously and shamelessly beg him for help, how much more will your father, who is slow to anger and steadfast love, Answer when you need him to give you help. And Jesus says, even if you who are evil <laughs> know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father, who is perfect goodness, pour out goodness to you when you ask? You see, the approach of dependence is one of audacious trust. When we approach our Father in heaven like children, this is what it takes, kind of this audacious trust. And I love actually how Paul Miller in that book, he, he describes, he says, let's do a quick analysis, and I, I love this, of how little children ask. He says, what do they ask for? They ask for anything and everything. If they hear about Disneyland, they want to go there tomorrow. And, and how often do little children ask, he says. They ask repeatedly over and over again. They wear us out. Sometimes we give in just to shut them up. And then he says, how do children ask? Without guile, they just say what's on their minds. They have no awareness of what is appropriate or inappropriate. They just ask for what they want. And Paul Miller says, to learn to pray is to enter the world of a child where all things are possible. He says, little children can't imagine that their parents won't eventually say yes. And the childlike faith drives this persistence. But he says, the older we get, and this is really, really busting me, he says, the older we get, we get less naive and more cynical. And the cynicism begins to undercut our prayer life. See, if we're going to have this kind of bold approach, we have to allow cynicism to be replaced with audacious trust. 
with a childlike, not a, not a childish, but with a childlike dependence on a Father who loves us beyond measure. One thing is necessary, Jesus says. One thing, dependence on him. I want to close this morning with a story about pastor and theologian John Stott. John Stott um, was a pastor, theologian, ministered in the Church of England, and he died two years ago on August 27th of 2011. And in the final book that he wrote called The Radical Disciple, he actually devotes an entire chapter to dependence. And as he was writing this book, he was, he was 90 years old. It was, he wrote it just before he died. He completed it. He was in a wheelchair. He was infirm. He was unable to walk. And he had needed people to take care of him constantly. And, and in that state, John Stott wrote these words at 90 years old. Listen, listen to what he says. He says, A refusal to be dependent on others is not a mark of maturity, but immaturity. He says, dependence is the most characteristic attitude for the radical disciple. God's design for our life is that we should become dependent on him and on one another. And this is what, this is what Stott says, and I think this is so insightful. He says, I sometimes hear old people, including Christians who should know better, say, I don't want to be a burden to anyone else. I'm happy to carry on so long as I can look after myself, but as soon as I become a burden, I would rather die. But Stott says, this is wrong. We are designed to be a burden to others. We are designed to be a burden. He says, you are designed to be a burden to me, and I am designed to be a burden to you. And the life of the family, including the life of the local church family, should be one of mutual burdensomeness. And he quotes Galatians 6, which says, by bearing one another's burdens, you fulfill the law of Christ. You see, Jesus came into the world dependent lived in dependence on the Father through the Spirit, and died on the cross dependent, and he was raised from the dead, dependent on the Father and the Spirit. You see, on the cross, Jesus received from the Father the wrath that we who are evil deserved. On the cross, he received the scorpion and the snake that we deserved as evil people. And in so doing, he opened a way for us to come before the throne of the Father, not as slaves, but as adopted children who are to ask with shameless audacity for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done, for our sins to be forgiven, for his protection to be granted, and for the thousand other things that cause us to live in worry and anxiety. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Father in heaven, I'm so thankful that we can call you Father. Help us to be dependent on you. To recognize that we as creatures are utterly dependent on you, that we're dependent on one another, that we weren't designed to live by ourselves. And actually learning to be dependent, to receive help, is, is a mark of maturity, not immaturity. We ask this in Jesus' name. Well, at the Brookside campus, we celebrate communion uh, just about every week, and want to add something to that starting today, of we're also going to have, during our communion time, uh, have a pastor or two available to pray for you. And we want to begin to learn to practice, even during our services, this posture of dependence. And so um, as we celebrate communion in the coming weeks, uh, feel free to receive communion. Uh, and if you have something that you would like prayer for, and you want to pray with someone right now, 
we'll have some pastors available to do that with you. And so uh, today during communion, I'm just going to be kind of standing over here to the side. And if there's something that you would like prayer for, I'd invite you to come. And I'd be delighted to pray for you even now. Well, Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. In the same way, he took the cup and he, when he had given thanks, he said, this is the cup, this is the blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And he invited us to do this in remembrance of him. In communion, as we taste the bread and the juice, we're reminded that we are utterly dependent on the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, for everything for physical life and for spiritual life. So in a moment, uh, I'm going to invite you to come. When you do come, there are three or there's four communion stations around the room, two in the back and two in the front here. This one in the back has gluten-free communion elements available. And when you come, come in groups of four or five and just gather around the table and partake uh, together after everyone's dipped the bread in the cup. Um, just take together. And it works best if you sort of exit through these side aisles and then kind of return back through uh, the center aisle. And take your time, and don't feel rushed. And like I said, I'm going to be available here uh, to pray with you. So if there's something um, that this message or just generally in your life has spurred, I'd love for the opportunity um, to pray with you even now. So when you're ready, come now to the Lord's table and taste and touch the good news of the gospel.